We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God our Creator, not our government. I believe that Scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, good morning. And yesterday, nearly 300,000 people rallied in Washington, D.C. at the March for Israel. And according to the Times of Israel, calling for the release of hostages held by terrorists in Gaza and invoking the Holocaust while condemning Hamas's October 7th onslaught with a cry of never again. The Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations CEO William Daroff said over uh, 290,000 people attended the event, making it the largest pro-Israel gathering in U.S. history. And our good friend Joel Rosenberg, who is the editor-in-chief of All Israel News, posted a story about this a couple of hours ago on his social media. If you're not following him at Joel C. Rosenberg, you should be, and go to All Israel dot com uh, to get the latest out of Washington and uh, his headline is uh, Washington DC this rally is an unprecedented show of support for Israel speaking to the crowd via satellite Israeli President Isaac Herzog says once again in Jewish history we demand let our people go so Joel Rosenberg joins us now for uh, what has become really a weekly update on uh, what is going on in the Israel and Hamas conflict so good morning uh, Joel Rosenberg, thanks once again for joining us. And uh, let's talk first about this uh, March for Israel in Washington, D.C. and uh, the attempts by, my understanding is that the Biden administration at least um, is trying to help negotiate the hostage releases and uh, they are at least helping uh, with that, even though State Department staffers have signed a letter now complaining about Biden supporting Israel. And there seems to be a fundamental conflict with Democrats. Uh, but how is this looking in terms of the effectiveness of the March for Israel in Washington, D.C. yesterday? Well, great to be with you, Jenna. Thank you so much. And I'm always happy to be your uh, your special correspondent here in Israel and uh, uh, with all Israel news. So great to be with you. Look, first of all, let's start with the march. Yes, this was a huge success. I mean, there were there was talk, there was some concern early on that it might be only 30 or 40,000 people. Uh, but when you've got 300,000, now you're talking about real strong support, yes, from the Jewish community, but also uh, strong numbers of evangelical Christians who really turned out because we love Israel so much, we love the Jewish people, and there's no moral fog, right, among evangelical Christians about, uh, about standing with Israel. Yes, we love Palestinians, and we care for them as the civilians, but we stand with Israel, and I thought that was a very, very powerful day. The television images 
uh, the photos all over the world. Because mostly what we've been seeing generate are, are huge pro-Hamas rallies in Washington or London or wherever, all over the world. And that has been very, very discouraging because these are not pro-Palestinian protests or rallies. They're pro-Hamas, right? Where were these pro-Palestinian, quote-unquote, people when Palestinians were being slaughtered by Bashar al-Assad in Syria, right, or in Lebanon or in uh, ISIS genocides? We didn't see that. But they have turned out to to, uh, be pro-Hamas, and this is just uh, so repugnant that it was so encouraging to see Jews and Christians and others uh, standing for Israel yesterday. You mentioned the State Department. My goodness, all of these people should be fired. If, if, If State Department staff cannot understand the moral clarity of standing with an ally who has been the, uh, the attacked in a genocidal fashion, then they should literally all be fired. I mean, that is just, that is so repugnant. And uh, every day that uh, Secretary Blinken allows these people to stay on staff is a major, uh, a major mistake. Look, Biden has done well in the early stages, but, um, but uh, I'm not convinced that he's doing everything he can possibly do we keep hearing statements uh, on the one hand that are strong out of, out of the White House, but the other hand, like really encouraging Israel to do a ceasefire. And that is just wrong until we win. Yeah. And also, according to the Associated Press this morning, the Biden administration has extended by four months a sanctions waiver that uh, will allow um, Iraq to continue to purchase electricity from Iran and gives Iran limited access to the proceeds to buy humanitarian goods. So it also seems like um, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken that signed this 120-day waiver extension and transmitted it to Congress yesterday um, is conflicted in this. Are we are we supporting Israel and actually doing everything we can? And then President Biden doesn't even show up at the rally because, oh no, there are actually Christians there. Uh, but then they're also so still supporting Iran, which is uh, fundamental to this conflict. So I think we do see a conflict of interest there from the Biden administration. Oh, my gosh. You're absolutely right, Jenna. And, and you put it so well. How crazy is that the president of the United States couldn't show up at a pro-Israel rally of 300,000 people basically in his front yard? Like, but instead, literally on the same day, is giving money to the Iran terror state? Like this is, this is what you know. I think I've used the expression on your show. Biden is like bipolar on this issue, or he's schizophrenic. Maybe uh, he he literally cannot decide between his love for Israel, which I do believe is genuine, and yet he's he he's constantly hedging, and he he he's so sure that he can be friendly to Iran. Why? Why? What? Where is the evidence? After 50 years, much less over the last 15, over the last five, give us the last five months, Jenna. Tell me where the evidence is that anything that Biden has done to try to bribe the Iranian regime to be a friendly, peaceful country has worked. It absolutely hasn't. So he should, you know, look, I, I give you, know, you, obviously you and I both have some criticisms of President Trump, but he showed up at the pro-life rally. Right. He showed up. Exactly. Okay, there's Secret Service protection. He had to take some extra measures. And new. But my goodness, the man was really pro-life. And so he really showed up. 
And if you're really pro-Israel, how do you not show up to a, to a pro-Israel rally in your front yard? It, this, this is where he gets points in the one column and then, and then negative uh, uh, you know, debits in the other column. And it's this conflict, and it's not pro-Israel to be half-hearted about being pro-Israel in the midst of a fight with a genocidal enemy. Yeah, and you're right, Jill Rosenberg, that uh, everyone, whether you agreed with him or not on policy, everyone knew where President Trump stood. And I respected that from a president. And also, our foreign allies and also adversaries understood where he stood. And so does this conflict of interest and this lackluster support for Israel undermine the trust between America and our ally Israel in wondering whether or not the administration is actually supporting Israel? Behind the scenes, yes, it does. It does cause Israeli officials and the Israeli people to, to, to struggle. But mostly we're glad that Biden is as strongly pro-Israel as he has been. Um, but it, but it can, it's confusing. And obviously nobody here wants to criticize Biden because we not only want American help, we need it. And it was encouraging, let's say, to see um, our evangelical new uh, Speaker of the House uh, standing with uh, the Jewish uh, Senate Majority Leader in a, you know, a show of solidarity. That's good, right? We need more of that, right? Um, and that's where um, you know, we, need to, we need to see Israel be a bipartisan issue. Ukraine has become a deeply and increasingly um, divisive partisan issue. Even though, in my view, look, I'm not a big fan of every single thing that the Ukrainian government is doing. But if you get invaded by a monster like Vladimir Putin, I would rather see us uh, defeating Putin there than having to send our soldiers to fight him in Poland or, you know, the, the Baltics. Right. So but but that's a divisive issue in America right now. Increasingly, America, it should I mean, Americans should be standing strong in a bipartisan way with Israel. And mostly they are. Um, but, but again, Biden is, is, uh, is conflicted and we can feel the conflict in him. And the biggest issue is what you pointed to. It's the Iran issue. There's no question that Biden wants us to win in Gaza and we will. That's not even a, it's not even a question. The, the, the struggle Biden is having is, does he want Iran to be, um, to, to pay, to, to be held accountable for all this t- horrific terrorism that it's exporting. And no, the answer is pretty clear. Biden does not want to hold the Iranian regime accountable. But when you don't hold bad guys accountable, they're going to do more bad things. And that's what's coming. A much worse war if Biden doesn't get serious and fast with Iran, because Iran's at 84% enrichment of uranium. They only have to get to 90% to have fully operational nuclear warheads. So so if you don't get tough, and I mean really tough, I mean language that I don't use as a Christian type tough, <laughs> with the Iranian regime now, you're you're gonna they're gonna move into the place where they can do a second Holocaust just with a few missiles. And Jill Rosenberg, uh, my guest this morning and our special correspondent from Jerusalem, um, so appreciate you, the editor-in-chief of All Israel News. Go to All Israel. 
uh, dot com for all of uh, all of his great reporting. And I think you're so right that America can't just be pro-Israel in terms of hopefully all of the foreign aid, and that is still being discussed in a uh, very divided Congress. And we'll see what comes with the aid package. But we also have to actually hold the evildoers accountable. And that is a huge piece that it has not been uh, really touched upon, that it's not just about being pro-good, but also restraining evil. And that goes to the biblical principle of uh, of of Micah six eight and and to and and the fundamental premise of government, which is to promote good and actually virtuously restrain evil. And uh, so, what do you expect from Congress in terms of the aid package and whether we will get to that bipartisan consensus? Well, you would understand what's happening in Washington better than me right now, but I, I, I'm hopeful. I, I, I find it difficult to see a scenario in which Congress doesn't um, put its money uh, where its mouth is. They're all saying they're pro-Israel. Great. Now is the time to get that uh, into, a, in my view, a clean um, aid package, deal with Ukraine separately, though I fully support more uh, military supplies, but not cash. Ukraine, uh, more missiles, you know, more, um, more anti-tank missiles, and so forth. Um, I don't, I don't want us to be giving. Uh, I don't want the United States to be giving the Ukraine cash. But, uh, but I think that should be honestly a different vote. Um, don't mix the two. Israel needs this aid. We need it now, and Ukraine's gotten a lot of aid. So let's get this package done, um, but also keep the government moving and and, and start cutting government also. But uh, and then deal with um, aid and of course the border. I think that no no amount of money should be uh, no amount of arms should be given to Ukraine unless border security is much tougher. Because uh, you know I think um, both President Trump and and, and uh, uh, Governor DeSantis and and Governor Haley have I think have been in their different ways, but they've been clear. You cannot be helping our allies defend their borders if if America isn't defending her borders. So, uh, you know, my most recent novel, uh, The Libyan Diversion, is about radical Islamist terrorists sneaking in nuclear dirty bombs into the United States to create mass terror through terror tunnels coming from Mexico. So this is something I've been writing about, warning about. Um, I think that southern border with Mexico is a disaster in the waiting. And and um, it's got to be sealed up fast. Yeah, well said. Uh, Jill Rosenberg, we're continuing to pray for you, for your family, for your safety. And uh, follow Jill Rosenberg on X and also at allisrael.com. We'll look forward to another update on how things are progressing uh, with our ally Israel and continue to pray for Israel. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Leisha had found herself in an unplanned pregnancy and wasn't sure what to do. She searched for pregnancy services and found a preborn network clinic where she was counseled, supported, and offered a free ultrasound. After seeing her baby and hearing the heartbeat, she cried. She was certain she would keep her baby forever. Leisha gave birth to a baby girl who is smart, beautiful, and full of life. 
Often, she visits that same clinic and receives free clothes, diapers, and more. Because of your generous support, Preborn writes 200 stories just like these every day. $28 can be the difference between the life and death of a child. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection and doubles a baby's chance at life. Let's join together and help mothers in crisis choose life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your donation goes towards saving babies. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And while the pro-Israel rally in Washington, D.C. yesterday was, according to uh, Joel Rosenberg, our last guest, and I think a number of uh, media outlets, a huge success, this also uh, comes with rising complaints about not only the Biden administration's support for Israel, but also Americans in general supporting Israel. So you have the State Department staffers that did sign that letter complaining about Biden supporting Israel, but also Muslim law groups are now accusing top law firms of Islamophobia. So according to Bloomberg Law, law firms, quote, one-sided support for Israel is contributing to rising Islamophobia and anti-Arab sentiment in the U.S., according to Muslim American lawyer groups. The groups, according to the American Muslim Bar Association and the National Association of Muslim Lawyers, on Monday sent letters to the nation's top 100 law firms urging the firms to take specific steps to support Palestinian, Arab, and Muslim legal professionals as the Israel-Hamas war continues, sparking protest and debate across the United States. So according to the organization um, that they wrote this letter, quote, some firms' uneven treatment of this highly sensitive issue is sadly dehumanizing Palestinian, Arab, and Muslim lives, creating a workplace that is less inclusive, less welcoming, and more hostile toward these underrepresented Group. So what does that sound like? Well, DEI, and it sounds very woke to me. But joining me now is our good friend, Josh Hammer, who is an editor at Newsweek and also uh, hosts the Josh Hammer Show, which is on air across Seattle, growing rapidly across the United States and also on Newsweek channels. So, uh, Josh, what do you make of this in terms of the law group suggesting that somehow because Americans support Israel and in the wake of, of rising anti-Semitic remarks, even from members of Congress that are now censured, um, that somehow this is creating a less inclusive workplace. Yeah, Jenna, I, I'm not even sure where to begin with this one, right? I mean, FBI federal hate crime statistics year in and year out are remarkably consistent about this. We actually have concrete data on religiously motivated hate crimes as the FBI defines them in America. And year in and year out, we have reliable data that between 55 and 65 percent, usually right around 60 percent, of religiously motivated hate crimes in America are against Jews, are against the Jewish people. By contrast, Typically, the number of or the percentage of religiously motivated hate crimes in America, again, this is from annual FBI data that is committed against Muslim Americans, is is typically around 11 to 12 percent or so. So it's uh, between a a, a fifth and a sixth, roughly one fifth, 20 percent of the religiously motivated hate crimes against the Jews are against the Muslims. So 
It's a fancy way of saying that there are way, 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 way more religiously motivated hate crimes against Jews in America than against Muslims. Typically, these are against uh, you know visibly Jewish people, folks who who, who dress like like Orthodox or um, you know Haredi kind of ultra Orthodox Jews. And uh, unfortunately, that is a, that is inconvenient for the left narrative. That is, that is an inconvenient fact for the left's intersectional view of America, of this of this quasi-Marxist, this new Marxist divvying up of America by groups of oppressor and and oppressed. And under the left's DEI intersectional framing, um, the, the Jews who historically, going back in world history, have been the most oppressed people have been the most discriminated, like the, the world's most historical, most uh, pervasive, ubiquitous scapegoat whenever things start rotting in a society. Somehow, under this modern kind of leftist mentality, the, the, the Jews in America have become not oppressed, but an oppressor class. And Muslims, by contrast, are, are, are now deemed to be oppressed. So what, what you're seeing here, I think, with where the Biden administration has gone, on this over the past few weeks. Recall that when, when, when the war first started, when Hamas first committed its, its unspeakable acts of Nazi-like barbarism, their atrocities on October 7th, um, again, the worst slaughter of Jews since Hitler was alive, you know, Biden, right out of the gate, was, was actually pretty good. I mean, you know, his first statements, his first rhetorical support were quite good. In fact, the Tuesday after the attack, he gave this very powerful speech that I, I've heard from some folks in Israel that the Israelis loved this speech so much that they actually used it to try to teach English to elementary school students over there. This was the Tuesday right after the attack. It was right around then that Karine Jean-Pierre actually, you know, I can't believe I'm about to praise her. But this is like <laughs> back then she even went out of her way to condemn Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar for their disgraceful initial comment. But all of that has changed. It has all changed over the past few weeks as now they talk about Islamophobia. I, I mean, Karine Jean-Pierre couldn't even bring herself to forthrightly condemn people who are disgustingly taking down these posters of the hostages in America's city streets. And all of this is, is part of it is due to this intersectional woke mentality of oppressed and oppressor classes where – they will not let stubborn facts like those FBI crime statistics get in the way of their tidy and convenient narrative. And the other part of it is that Joe Biden remains wildly unpopular. He trails pretty much all the Republicans that I've seen right now in, in most of the polling. He certainly trails former President Trump when it comes to most of the key swing states. And he knows that he can't afford to lose much more in the way of Muslim American support, especially in swing states like Michigan, for example, where there is a large Arab population. So I, I really do think that it is actually that cynical, that that is what is going on here. But that cynicism certainly does not make it any less disgusting because it really is quite disgusting. It, it is. And, and I would certainly underscore and echo your comments um, in that regard. And and something else that you said, Josh Hammer, who is uh, the editor at large for senior editor at large for Newsweek and syndicated host of The Josh Hammer Show, uh, is about diversity, equity and inclusion, uh, really never actually including and, and, and creating a better safe space or any of these goals that are allegedly a part of the progressive left's uh, agenda for anyone who historically has been attacked and, and excluded. And this would be primarily uh, Jews and Christians, anyone who believes in the Judeo-Christian faith and worldview. Um, that, that 
is is automatically excluded from DEI. And and I think this is on purpose. And so as we look to uh, how DEI is rapidly going into institutions, particularly now judiciary, our judiciary and also our legal practice, I think that's very concerning on a whole different level. And you used to clerk for a judge. Um, how difficult is this in terms of uh, where we are going to be at in just a couple of years if this progresses in terms of the judiciary? Well, uh, I, certainly many of the states right now are taking direct legislative action trying to curtail or outright ban DEI from university campuses. I mean, Texas, if I'm not mistaken, and has passed a fairly straightforward anti-DEI law. Florida definitely has, has done that. Um, many other red states, I think, are following as well. So that, I mean, that's that's definitely one of the one of the new terrains. I mean, that's one of the new frontiers for the for the culture war is, is eradicating DEI from 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 American universities, from American corporate boardrooms. I, I and I think it's a worthy and just battle. I, I mean, DEI is a, is a cancer. I mean, DEI, critical race theory. Um, but, but but this is this is this is solid terrain for conservatives, I think, to fight on, Jenna. Because I think once you actually explain what DEI entails to the American people, when you explain it, kind of like what we were just discussing, how is this quasi-Marxist mentality that that arbitrarily divides America based on characteristics like religion, ethnicity, race, whatever, all these and divvies you up based on oppressed and oppressor status. The American people just aren't into it. And, you know, one way to kind of evince that is that the investment version of DEI, which is ESG, Environment, Social, and Governance Investing, is kind of the woke DEI version of how to invest your money. ESG is is a massive anchor around the next of of the of leftists right now the ESG has been losing in state after state it is wildly unpopular and i think it was larry fink the head of blackrock earlier this this summer if i recall who basically said you know what we're we're not cutting outright uh, ESG but we're severely pulling back on it because the the market demand for it is just not there right now you know the, our clients don't necessarily want ESG and again ESG is really just the the business community, the investment community's version of DEI, and I, I think this is I think this is good stuff. I think conservatives should continue to push back there. I don't necessarily immediately spot any kinds of, of glaring legal issues when it comes to these laws that try to disband this cancer. I mean, you know, as, as the audience here knows, America's. American constitutional structure, the federal government is one of limited enumerated powers, but the states have, have do have police power within their jurisdiction. They're allowed to legislate for the health, safety, morals, and general welfare of their citizens in the states as long as they do not infringe upon constitutional rights, uh, the Bill of Rights and so forth. That's just how constitutional law works. So, I mean, I can't think of any you know Bill of Rights individual protections that these DEI laws would, would infringe upon. I'm sure you'd have lefty lawyers who would make some sort of abstruse claims about it would somehow infringe upon your freedom of association or something like that. But, you know, most of the judges that I can think of, um, certainly in these kind of right-leaning jurisdictions, I think would, uh, you know, wouldn't have much of an issue with these sort of laws. 
Yeah, I, I fully agree with uh, that analysis. And, you know, what's interesting and fascinating to me is that when we do explain um, DEI and CRT and ESG and all of these, um, you know, it seems like the three-letter acronyms, you know, like an FBI, DOJ, all of these are bad. We should just, like, get rid of all the three-letter acronyms in, in Washington and, and the state. But um, but it seems like once we do explain that to the American people, um, common sense Americans do reject that. We know it's fundamentally antithetical to not only the structure of um, how our civil government works, but antithetical to prosperity and and capitalism and everything that our civil society is built upon to have this arbitrary metric. And yet we see, um, kind of turning to, to more political analysis, we see um, that a lot of the, the red wave just isn't happening in election after election after election. Is it a failure, do you think, of the Republican Party or conservatives as a whole to kind of connect the dots and say, okay, if you're against DEI and you're against the progressive left, therefore you have to vote in these specific elections for these specific offices um, because there's a breakdown somewhere and it, it just doesn't make sense that if we're rejecting all of the progressive leftist theories that Republicans continue to lose or are we just not nominating the right people? You know, I, this is going to sound like something a consultant would say, so I kind of regret that because I'm the furthest thing from a political consultant. But I, I think the Republican Party generally right now has a massive brand problem. It has a, just a massive image problem, and we can we can quibble. Uh, you know, I think folks can reasonably disagree as to why that brand problem exists. I, I think part of it is kind of just the the general aura of. Uh, of Trump and his and his legal troubles, and more generally the fact that that he still wants to relitigate the 2020 election, he just won't let that go. I mean, there's there's any things that you can say about Trump. I do certainly place part of the blame for the Republican Party's image problem on on him. On on the other hand, um, uh, Republicans uh, and conservatives in general just aren't donating right now. They're not fundraising as much as the other side is. They're not mobilizing the voters. There's not a get-out-the-vote operation like the other side has right now. I mean, look at what happened in Ohio last Tuesday, a devastating loss for our side, for the pro-life side. At the ballot box in, in Ohio, we were massively out-fundraised. We were out-mobilized. I mean, we, we just, you know, we just left that fight with, with our tails between our legs, so to speak. And it's really sad because for a very long time, uh, you know, pro-lifers were the ones who totally, consistently were, were always out mobilizing uh, the pro-abortion side, and and that's now sadly changed over, over recent years. So, uh, I'm not entirely sure exactly why why this is the case. Um, I, I, I'm not sure why we just have this sort of fundraising problem. It's not the easiest thing to do to complain about a fundraising problem. It's a hard thing to do to change it because you actually need. More people to just start ponying up the bucks, uh, you know, get out the vote is, is not necessarily the most uh, the cheapest or most straightforward stuff. I mean, it's kind of thorny stuff. You have to really actually contact voters. This stuff takes time. It takes money. So we need more good people at the grassroots level just to start donating, to start volunteering for, for things like that. And then kind of going back to the top level, Trump is not the only issue here. Uh, you know, Ronna McDaniel, I mean, she's been the RNC head for, what, five years or so now, five, six years or so. I mean, does she have a single election victory to show for it? I mean, uh, you know, in the private sector, when you fail to perform, you typically lose your job. That's kind of just the nature of how market incentives work, of how profit works, of how loss works and whatnot there. 
But I, I, look, I mean, I, I don't know Rana personally. She seems like a nice person based on what I've heard. Um, but, I mean, she just has a remarkable record of losing and ranking competence. And um, in any other line of work, that in theory should result in, in you losing your job. And I think it's somewhat ironic, Jenna, that one of the only reasons that Rana McDaniel still has her job as uh, the RNC head is that it was none other than Donald Trump himself who was working not so subtly behind the scenes to ensure that she still had that job back in January of this year when she was facing a very serious challenge to it from Harmie Dillon. Yeah, I, and I, I agree with uh, all of your comments there in terms of the overall branding problem and, and fundamentally a, a worldview problem in terms of what genuinely makes a conservative. And you and I have talked offline um, and online on, on X and, you know, of course, in, in your commentary and, and coming on our, um, you know, our, our mutual uh, guest hits with each other in terms of shows on um, what defines conservatism and how we can translate that into uh, policy, into elections. And, and I think because Republicans as a whole and conservatism as a whole is very diverse, oddly, even more than the Democrats. They tend to vote in lockstep for very specific uh, policies, and they they just do that without any questions. Um, we have kind of a wide range of views and um, people who aren't necessarily focused on some of these critical issues like a DEI and like making sure that we have um, good substantive um, constitutional law advocacy um, in terms of judicial appointments. I mean, all of these things go into all of this. Um, but I'm speaking with Josh Hammer, who is the senior editor at large at Newsweek and syndicated host of the Josh Hammer Show. And he will join us again on the flip side of this break. So stay with us here for more at Jenna Ellis in the morning. We'll be right back. We want to welcome a new sponsor to American Family Radio, and I hope you give them your full support, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. If you're like most of us, you're feeling the strain of rising healthcare costs. Well, good news, Christian Healthcare Ministries may be the answer you're looking for. CHM is an affordable, faith-based option to traditional healthcare that provides members the freedom to choose doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods since they are not insurance. Can you say Freedom. CHM is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry and has been around for over 40 years, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. They are tried and true and have members in all 50 states and around the world and have covered billions in medical bills. Members not only get advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24 7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise surprised that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. Make the switch today by visiting chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back, and we're continuing to discuss all of the top trending headlines and political and legal analysis with my good friend Josh Hammer, who is the senior editor at large for Newsweek and the host of the nationally syndicated The Josh Hammer Show, which I highly recommend and I listen to regularly. I always read everything that Josh writes because he is uh, very prolific and I think one of the most important voices uh, currently in um, American politics and um, and and 
all things Israel and um, and a lot of things. And so, uh, Josh, I also want to get your commentary on um, the House voting to avoid a government shutdown. So late last night, the House voted 336 to 95 to pass an interim spending bill so as to avert a government shutdown a days ahead of the Friday deadline. Even before voting, it was clear that the continuing resolution, the CR, according to Town Hall, had more than the necessary two-thirds to pass. The bifurcated bill would extend funding at current levels for some agencies and programs until January 19th and all others through February 2nd. And Daily Wire says this, the bill did not include spending cuts, which made it more palatable to Democrats and did not attach supplemental funds for pressing national security matters that GOP leadership aims to tackle separately. So um, overall, good, bad, compromise kind of in the middle um what should we think about this uh cr you know john i mean my sympathies typically lie with you know the freedom caucus types when it comes to these internecine intra-party fights um freedom caucus seems particularly displeased with this cr so i have no reason to, to doubt that and uh, you know, I mean, I mean, at this point, I guess I, I'm kind of numb, honestly. I, I feel like we've seen this happen so many times. Those of us like me and you who, who follow this stuff for better or for worse for a living. I mean, how many times, Jenna, have have we seen Republicans, you know, talk a big game about confronting a leftist uh, policy run amok, whether it comes to out of control deficit spending, whether it comes to the out of control southern border, whether it comes to any number of other policies. How many times have we seen them say that, no, now we're finally kind of drawing a line to stand and this is where we're actually going to fight, and then nothing ends up happening? Look, I, I, I happen to like Mike Johnson a lot personally based on what I can tell. I think that he is a genuine upgrade over Kevin McCarthy for sure. Um, I, I was skeptical of, of Matt Gates's uh, tactics or lack thereof, you might say, at the time. I don't think Matt Gates frankly, even knew what he was doing. But the net result of it does seem to be an upgrade. I think Johnson is clearly an upgrade over Kevin McCarthy. But, I mean, can I say that I'm that I'm surprised that that, that he is cutting a deal like this? To keep, you know, no, of course I'm not surprised. I mean, I, I, at some point that almost seems like it, beca- it became kind of like an unwritten description of, of what it means to be the leader of, of the House Republicans, whether it's the Speaker or Majority Leader, is that you are expected to kind of cut these these bipartisan deals with, with, with Democrats. So I, I, that's not a good thing. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of, of just kind of capitulating and throwing the ball down the road there. Um, but, you know, look, it's not all bad for Speaker Johnson. I don't want to kind of pile on him. Um, you know, I, he did successfully see, you mentioned the Israel topic, he did successfully see the passing of this, you know, clean 14.1 or whatever is billion-dollar aid to Israel. Uh, the Senate is disgracefully having that. Uh, held up as it tries to to tie it to to aid for Ukraine and an entirely entirely unrelated topic, um, which I, which I think is just awful. I, I think that that is cynical beyond belief for Democrats trying to to use the the, the largest slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust as a, as a way of trying to uh, manipulate the public in, in, into you know continuing to fund its aimless and feckless Ukraine policy. It's disgraceful stuff. Um, but, you know, whether it's this CR or whether it's uh, more recently we saw House Republicans fail to get even a procedural vote in order in order to proceed with a possible impeachment resolution for Secretary Mayorkas, 
you know, that to me was just another kind of eye-opener this week. You know, it reminds me of, again, kind of mentioning the Israel topic. There was an Israeli political theorist decades ago by the name of Abba Eben, and he had this famous quote. He said this a long time ago, probably like the 1970s or something like that. And he said that the Palestinians never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And for the entirety of my adult life, Jenna, that's kind of how I view the Republican Party. I kind of view them as never missing an opportunity to miss an opportunity, whether it is the low-hanging fruit of Alejandro Mayorkas, whether it is the border security issue in general, which truly kind of what's been happening at the border over the past few years, should be a unifying issue for Republicans to rally around, whether it is for Mayorkas or whether for, for funding legislation in general there. But unfortunately, it seems like that's not in the cards right now. Yeah, and uh, is it too much, Josh Hammer, to to think that we as conservatives are tired of being so cynical toward uh, the the Republicans, particularly on the federal level, that seem to always make these concessions, and it's sort of a pro forma matter, of course, that they're just going to compromise with Democrats when clearly that is not a two way street. And when Democrats are in power, they say, "Well, too bad, we have the majority." And so, you know, good luck, Republicans. We'll forget that you exist until maybe you win uh, the majority back later uh, down the road. Or is it? Um, is it accurate to say, like, one commentator in, in during the whole speaker um, debate and the race, you know, when we, we had the chair vacated for about three weeks, said that Kevin McCarthy was holding together the majority by, like, silly putty and paper clips? And it seems like there's a problem then if you have the majority but you don't have a coalition, so it's necessary to go across the aisle and try to bring Democrats to your cause when you don't even have your own party. I mean, wh- why can't we expect better than that? I, I don't have a great answer to that. I mean, look, I mean, math, you know, simple arithmetic is, is obviously relevant here. I mean, Republicans do have a very narrow majority in the House, and, and Democrats control the Senate, the White House, so that's not the best possible negotiating position. There are obviously, I think, is a lot of truth to the notion that if you if, if you want better legislation passed, if you want better brinksmanship, if, if you want better policies, if you want better funding resolutions, then obviously you have to win more elections. That's kind of a typical line that you hear a lot of people say, and uh, I, 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 we, you know, we, we should acknowledge that there is some truth to that, that, that there definitely is a lot of truth to, to the idea that you just have to go about and win more elections. But it's kind of a catch-22 in a sense, isn't it? Because if you want your voters to come out and support you, you know, it's not particularly um, it, it's not a particularly sound motivating tactic. You're not really going to fire up the voters to get out of bed and go to the ballot box if you're a party that consistently disappoints you time and time again. You know, why would a, a swing voter then flock to you as, as opposed to the other party, which is, dis- which is disproportionately in the business of, of giving out, you know, so-called free stuff and 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 and, and things like that there. So. I, I am kind of numb to a lot of, of what the Republican Party does on the national level. That's kind of just a, just a sad reality of where, of where we are. I, I think at some point, maybe during maybe it was during the Obama administration, Republicans just really became absolutely terrified of the idea of, of a government shutdown, which I, I think is erroneous. Um, I, I, you know, no one particularly, I guess, is rooting for government shutdown, but. It's really not the end of the world, Jenna. I mean, if, it, if the federal government has it has to start, quote-unquote, shutting down for a little period of time, as you and I know, 
you know, it's not like the FAA is going to go out of business and the airplanes are going to start falling out of the sky. I mean, it's not like Capitol Hill is going to be just just totally dead and, and we're not going to have any lawmakers. No, I mean, like that, that's just simply not how it works. They start kind of furloughing, furloughing people at agencies that people have probably barely heard of. And if they've heard of them, then they've only heard of them slightly because they're not particularly relevant. These obscure alphabet soup, these state actors, I mean, that's, that's where you start trimming the fat when it gets to actual government shutdowns. So I think Republicans have been too scared of, of shutdowns. And when you're scared of the possible repercussions of, of your tactics, then you're obviously not going to have a, a viable negotiation, a viable brinksmanship to begin with. So I'm not entirely sure how that mentality seeps into the broader right, but I do think that there is a problem there when it comes to just so grossly fearing any and every kind of shutdown. Yeah, well, I want to get your comment on uh, Nikki Haley speaking of you know expecting better out of conservatives and you know hopefully um, just praying that that our leaders and you know possible uh, presidential nominees, um, if we can still call Nikki Haley that, um, that they would at least know th- some of the basics of constitutional protections and so forth. Um, this was Nikki Haley yesterday on wanting to remove anonymous accounts and basically forcing um, anyone who publishes online anonymously to have to reveal their actual identity. This is cut for. When I get into office, the first thing we have to do, social media accounts, social media companies, they have to show America their algorithms. Let us see why they're pushing what they're pushing. The second thing is every person on social media should be verified by their name. That's, first of all, it's a national security threat. When you do that, all of a sudden people have to stand by what they say and it gets rid of the Russian bots, the Iranian bots and the Chinese bots. And then you're going to get some civility when people know their name is next to what they say. Accountability. And they know their pastor and their family member is going to see it. It's going to help our kids and it's going to help our country. So civility over um, a long historic tradition of, you know, maybe the Federalist Papers and Publius and like all of the protections of being able to anonymously publish. I mean, this is just so antithetical to the First Amendment. Is she really, you know, that stupid, quite frankly, or and not understand what what she's actually advocating for? Or is this just a political talking point to say, oh, I have a plan to do something? Yeah, you, you took the word that my mouth, Jen. I mean, the, the federal papers are, are kind of the first thing that comes to my mind, too, when you think about the, the importance of, of, of writing synonymously. But this is something that we continue to see in, in modern times. I mean, there are any number of great accounts on Twitter. There are any number of publications that I read fairly regularly that publish essays from from people who, for one reason or another, cannot actually affix their their byline to, to the essay or to their Twitter account. Maybe that they are working at a corporate job nine to five and that they know that they would be fired for expressing such views, which is, which is terrible, by the way. The idea that the, 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 the notion that people think that they might have negative repercussions simply for having, you know, political stances is obviously a terrible thing, but that's just the reality that we live in there. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, it seems like Nikki Haley does not particularly care about these people, to put it mildly here. I, I, I think Nikki Haley, she's taken this whole national security hawk thing a little too far, I think would be a very polite way of saying it. She's styled herself as a national security hawk ever since her, her role at the, at the United Nations as, as the ambassador there, 
which is kind of funny, first of all, because she was governor of South Carolina. Governor of, of a state does not necessarily require taking, you know, robust stances when it comes to, to foreign policy or things like that. By definition, you're focused more on, on the issues pertaining to your state. But at some, at some point along the intellectual and career trajectory of Nikki Haley, she came to think of herself as this all-in national security hawk, and that that is kind of the analytical prism through which she approaches public policy in general. And it seems like that this is uh, that this is the same thing there. Um, I'm not entirely sure exactly how she would go about try, trying to enforce this. I, I, I mean, would they, you know, would they really like try to uh, actually, uh, you know, just straight up require that the social media companies do not allow synonymous speech? I mean, I don't even know what that would look like in practice. I mean, I'm trying to think of like what the actual enforcement mechanism would be. Are you really going to prosecute these companies? If a federal prosecutor, if someone actually just notices that there's like an account who's not quote-unquote verified with a social security number, it's icky stuff. I mean, it really kind of reeks of kind of surveillance state overweening government stuff. It definitely is not in line with the Anglo-American speech tradition going back hundreds and hundreds of years or so. Um, it's, it's the kind of thing that, 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 that someone who either has not thought about the issue particularly carefully or is just so ideologically motivated again through this national security prism there, she's also probably, for what it's worth, even kind of taking that issue on its own terms. She's probably severely overstating the actual national security threat as well. I mean, like, what what actually is the massive problem if there are a few bots? I mean, I, do I like the fact that there are paid bots from Russia, Iran, and other hostile foreign actors on social media? No, I mean, but this is kind of a leftist talking point going back to Russia being in the 2016 election, right? I mean, it's time the Hillary Clinton conspiracy theory all, all over again that, you know, Putin paid a Russian bot ultimately gave Donald Trump the election. That's kind of what you're hearing from Nikki Haley uh, in, in, in this clip here. So it, it's pretty ridiculous, and I, and I would say that she should know better, but I think she probably deep down does know better. She just doesn't really care. Yeah, and, and she's hoping that we don't know better and that we will uh, be convinced by just the rhetoric that sounds good, which ironically goes um, to the point that it, bots are only effective if they actually convince you of something that uh, you shouldn't be convinced of anyway. And I think for those of us who recognize that free speech, you have you have the right to um, put out views that you know maybe aren't great for society, but that's the nature of public debate that we don't just have one particular view that government says is acceptable. And we look at what was going on during the the COVID uh, pandemic when that was tried and it ultimately failed because more speech is always uh, the solution to bad speech. And it seems like Nikki Haley is just presuming that we as conservatives don't understand that. So, I mean, it's ultimately ridiculous. And the fact that she's actually one of the main uh, GOP candidates on the debate stage that's spouting this nonsense um, is just is just terribly tragic. And um, I hope that this is something that the conservatives in general push back on. Um, but Josh Hammer, we're already out of time. Follow him, Josh underscore Hammer on X. And listen to The Josh Hammer Show. You can always reach me and my team at Jenna at AFR.net. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. 
I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest-serving health cost-sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org/afr. That's chministries.org/afr.